Hello, and welcome back to the Observer Station. Start recording. Alright, started recording. Alright. So, John. Your name's John, right? Yep. Cool. This is John. John is working in what state now? I'm working in North Carolina with the Observer Program here for the Department of Marine Fisheries. I uh, Originally, though, I was working in Dutch Harbor, so many may know me from there as the uh, NOAA field agent. Um, I think currently Car- Caroline Lawrence lives up there now. Yeah, it's the last I heard. I don't think I heard anything about them putting a second field person out there. I may have heard... I don't know. I, I don't know if they're planning on. I know uh, plant assignments were kind of scattered around and given to other debriefers from what I heard. Um, but we'll go into you, John. So, John, you did spend, spend some time up in the Slammer, up in, in Alaska and Dutch. Um, you know, it's not quite jail, but it's pretty much jail. Uh, <laughs> what did you go to school for? Like, what was your schooling like? What's your background like before you ended up becoming a... Uh, in-season debriefer, all-around person, utility person in Dutch. So I originally actually got my associate's degree at Central Wyoming College in Riverton, Wyoming, um, and it was just like a general arts and science. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, from there, I ended up in the Inbri program where I did an undergraduate research project and got a grant, I believe. It was a money reward to go to the National Inbri Conference to present my research project with the group there, which was tracking West Nile virus and Kilix salis mosquitoes. From there, I kind of got a passion for research and further my science career, and I went to the University of Wyoming for zoology and a minor in insect biology, um, and that was just followed suit and kept going. And then while I was there, I got pretty close with a lot of people from various countries and got a a taste and love for travel, specifically outside the U.S. So I just decided to combine both my love of traveling, um, exploring other cultures, and to get my graduate degree. Thus, I ended up going to the University of Aberdeen for uh, marine fisheries. I believe the title of the master's project group was Applied Marine Fisheries and Ecology was the name of the program. And I was there for one year in Scotland. And that kind of pushed me into marine fisheries. And then from there, I became uh, came back and became an Alaska observer. Um, so I did about probably less of a observe, uh, less of a year. And that was intense, I'll say the least. So for all of you out there that are still observing, respect, because that is not an easy job. Uh, I worked with the company of AOI. And then from there, I basically took like a little sidewind because I wanted out of observing and took a job with USGS in Columbia, Missouri, um, working as a bioscience tech in the Asian carp department, basically trying to figure out how to mass murder them. And then from there, I took the job in Dutch Harbor and ended up up there as a NOAA agent and then stayed there for two years through COVID, which was intense. Um, and then from there, I moved back to or moved to North Carolina and joined uh, the Department of Marine Fisheries for the state. And now I'm a conservation biologist one, but I'm also called the observer coordinator and I run the logistics. That is quite the background. That's a lot. Uh, first of all, you said you did your graduate in Scotland. How many kilts do you own? 
I don't own any, actually, and though I, I kind of wanted to, but uh, they're actually a lot more expensive, and there are many different types of kilts, and that was something that I didn't think about until I got there. Um, my dad was more into it, but essentially, you have the kilts that are designed like suits, um, and those range between 500 to $1,000, like a, a suit would be uh, over here. And then you have the go out and drink kilts that actually have been banned in certain uh, stadiums in the UK because, uh, you know, when you're drunk, you do a lot of crazy stuff. So that was uh, interesting to hear about that background. Probably something you didn't expect to hear, but yeah, I don't own any kilts, unfortunately. You know, as someone who owns a kilt from Scotland, I can say uh, they're really easy to pee out of. So I could see how they could be problematic in stadiums because you got to go. You, you got to go. Um, uh, so what you studied mosquitoes, your graduate, you did a year in Scotland. What were you doing in there? I kind of remember you saying what you were doing, but so that it was a year program and it was, it's called a master's taught program. So you do about nine months of modules or classes, and then you do three months of like a master's project that you present and it's presented as if it was a master's thesis, but it's not as intense as a master's thesis, which is why it, it's done in a year. So I focused on parasites and snails in the North Sea uh, with some Norwegian professors and stuff like that for my master's project. And that was eye-opening. Um, and I got like a trip to Norway out of it uh, on one of their research vessels. And let me tell you, man, Norway has some seriously nice research vessels and i wasn't even on one of the good ones and i can tell you that they were nice that sounds pretty interesting uh you got any fun facts about snails that you can throw at some people um so not necessarily about snails but about parasites and explicitly and how parasite ecology is kind of growing field and it's getting a lot more headway because you should never underestimate parasites in the environment because during my master's project i read papers where people have been finding out that they in kind of a weird way control a lot of the environment specifically biological events so one instance is i think on the west coast there's this parasite that causes shells i think clams to stay closer to the surface for birds to eat and it's a cyclic rotation, so you'll see bird populations explode on various beaches on like a five to ten year cycle um, as these parasites basically work through them. It also helps push the population down so that the beaches don't get overrun with them. That's really interesting. You know, uh, a lot of people, uh, I saw quite a few parasites when dealing with uh, cutting up fish in Alaska, and they always kind of creep me out. They're one of those things that's interesting and horrifying. Don't touch me, please, uh, at the same time. I know there's not a lot of fish-to-human parasites. There are some, but... You know, I don't I don't think ringworms transfer to humans or whatever the heck you saw in like the livers of the Pollux and that. I don't think those transfer to humans. Still horrifying, though. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing is it's it's weird to think of parasites in like an ecological span, because if they're inside of you, obviously, I'd encourage you to see a doctor immediately and get rid of them because they're not going to do you a whole lot of good. Um, because most of the times 
at least the non-human parasites that end up in humans from eating like raw fish and stuff wreak quite a bit of havoc on your body. So a lot of people focus on the, the negative impacts to yourself, which rightfully so. But in terms of an environment and watching basically other animals suffer, it's kind of cool in a, I guess, in a morbid way to see how it, it all fits in nicely. And it's kind of, I don't know, for me, it's always just a weird thought that you would think this little tiny organism that everyone's like, oh, it's so harmful is basically manipulating the environment for its own gain in such a large scale in a lot of cases. Yeah, you know, fish really, a majority of fish don't have much of an impact in their environment besides what they eat and what they poop out and being food for other things. But parasites make active choices, make active impacts on their surrounding environment. Like you said, with the clams, or I know like there's that fungal thing with the ants and, um, Oh my gosh, what's the one? There's, there's a bunch of them. There's one that like messes with frogs, cause frogs to get eaten. And oh, there's, yeah, there's, there's lots of parasites. Yeah. There's also like, you know, those, kids who leech off their parents and that those are parasites um things like that oh yeah yeah gotta love those i mean probably not love those actually i would stay no, i mean those the parents well probably else. do so yeah, yeah. in general though yeah just keep those things out of your life so where are you from john i know you said you went to college in wyoming um but where are you originate from so i was kind of a military brat so i moved from california to oregon to texas to wyoming but most of my life um is wyoming so i tend to really call that as like my point of origin most of my i guess growth you could say came from wyoming so you went wyoming to where next so you did wyoming you did college in wyoming then where where'd you go from there john so i went wyoming to scotland to wyoming to alaska as an observer so i guess so how'd you end up from wyoming to alaska how'd you get into the observer program what how'd you find it i mean a lot of people find it in a lot of different ways usually it's word of mouth or i found it on a ripped up piece of paper on a job board over here on the oregon coast but so funny enough and i still give my dad crap about it um he was the one that found it because i came back with a master's degree and i didn't realize that even though they accept like loan money (laughs) from the u.s government that the u.s department of education for those who do have degrees outside the u.s does not recognize anything unless you pay an additional 200 dollars for them to basically look at your degree and go oh yeah that's that's a master's degree you're good to go uh if you don't have that piece of paper uh most places will just consider it an experience and not count it towards education so i was kind of in a rut not finding any jobs that would accept me or interview me because they thought i was underqualified because they basically were ignoring my master's degree private sector it's hit or miss on that but essentially my dad found the observer program and was like why do you do that and i'm like well because in scotland i heard about their observer programs and my friends were basically swore that off say that you get treated like crap and it's like one of the worst grunt biological positions you could possibly imagine uh over there and that it's kind of good experience but it's going to be kind of very painful um so i was kind of avoiding it for a little bit and Sally basically was like you know what i got nothing to lose i need the money i need to get something over here because people are looking at me and being like you have all these degrees and absolutely no experience 
in any of the science fields, at least in marine sciences, it's all mostly terrestrial at that point. So I just went for it. And uh, yeah, that was quite the experience, to say the least. Did you apply for just AOI or did you find the other observer companies to apply for? Yeah, I just applied for AOI because that was the only one I knew of. So it was literally I applied. And then I think like a week or two later, I got a phone call where they're like, you're overqualified, but you're hired. I was like, "Okay, that works. You know, at an adjusted pay rate, right? Because you were overqualified. Yeah, I wish. (laughs) But that was basically not it. It it was a long conversation of like, I'm just letting you know that you're overqualified, but... You know, are you good at repetitive stuff? I'm like, repetitive <laughs> stuff? I was like, sure. I don't know. Did you... Okay, so during your observer stint, what kind of vessels or what kind of assignments did you get? So... Oh, geez. Now I have to remember the, the piece of paper that all observers signed that basically say you can't talk. Uh, you can't name specific vessels. You can say what assignments you're on. Like, yeah. did you do flatfish, CP? Did you do... Right. So I was on Amendment 80s for the most part, and I had one catcher vessel and one plant duty. Um, That's a pretty broad range right there. Yeah. I didn't do any Amendment 90 CP stuff, which I was kind of happy about because I was like, that sounds miserable to me, which people kind of laughed at me and were like, flatfish is miserable. I'm like, yeah, but there's variety of misery. Very, very true. Nothing's like standing there watching Pollock go across the belt. Yeah. Instead, I had lots of flatfish. So many flatfish and, you know, various random things that you just stare at and be like, what is this? And for me, you got to understand... I was still relatively new to marine fisheries at that point. Like, I was basically taught in the European version of it. So all the fish were brand new to me. So I was just like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. No idea what kind of fish that is. That's goofy. So I was kind of geeking out with some of the fishermen for the first little bit, not trying to figure out what all everything was. Uh, So you did some time observing. You left observing. You worked for USGS doing carp research. Uh, How many fish did you get to electrocute? So we didn't do any electrofishing. At least I wasn't a part of that. That was another group. Um, I honestly dealt with, I was a bioscience tech, so I actually was helping set nets up and experiments of all the different ways you can kill carp. Uh, We were looking into, basically, I believe it was a Chinese method of herding uh, the fish into nets and basically mass harvesting them in the hopes of basically mass harvesting them and killing them off in large numbers. Um, I don't really know how all it went. I just remember doing it and it was somewhat boring because after the nets were set you just kind of sat around while one person had speakers in the boat and they kind of did this chase sequence and chase the fish into different block nets and then at the end we sang them and pulled them in um that was one experiment and then i basically kept the ones in the center alive to basically be experimented on humanely um which was pretty cool i'll say because it it opened the door to like the different sciences and different people that kind of work on fish in in different perspectives um so for those who don't know the usgs stands for the united states geological service or survey um 
and they are the only branch that actually is strictly science. Uh, the others are tagged into something else as well. So um, like NOAA, for instance, is technically part of the Department of Commerce. And although they use science and do do science research, they primarily focus on uh, the commercial side of things. How do we manage things? There's, a, there's other elements attached to it. Well, USGS is literally just like, we are the science. We study everything. Well, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, so you went from playing sweet butt rock music to herd carp into magic pens for them to be uh, taken to a farm and released on the wild pastures, as one does when they ethically take care of animals. And you went up to Dutch. So... How'd you end up there, and how'd you get conned into doing the Dutch assignment? So that is also kind of a funny story because I was looking for jobs because as a bioscience tech, I was also technically overqualified because I was GS5, which is you need a bare minimum of a bachelor's degree or two years experience. Um, and I was trying to find a way out because as much fun as it is to peacefully move fish along, I was very bored and kind of missing some, some more action, so to speak, um, outside of that. And the pay wasn't good. And the Dutch Harbor position popped up and I looked at it and I was like, oh, absolutely not. And my dad called me and was like, hey, did you see this position? It's a good foot in the door. And I was like, yeah, but but that's Dutch. That That's Dutch Harbor. I, uh, I, I was temporarily there and uh, it wasn't the funnest place to be, uh, but it certainly is a foot in the door. I, it gives you that. So I actually pondered it for a while and then just decided, you know, there's nothing, you know, nothing to gain, nothing to lose except just to apply and see where it goes. So I applied, interviewed, and then was hired. And then the reality of me moving to Dutch Harbor sunk in and I was like, hmm, now I have to do all this. And then along the time that happened, the news was saying something about a, a deadly virus or borders closed and all sorts of fun stuff. So was working out the logistics of trying to move from Wyoming or Missouri all the way to Alaska was a truck during the beginning of the pandemic. And that was not also fun because we got to the Canadian border and they're not friendly. I'll just say it straight up. Like, I don't know what happened to the Canadians are always friendly, but that's that I found not to be true. Really that all, at least at the border, they give us absolute, even though I had all the papers to say, let us through um they were kind of being jerks about it and we're like you don't have the papers for your dad though and i'm like how am i supposed to drive through all of canada in less than 24 hours with just me and they're like well first off you're not doing that with two people and i'm sitting here like uh i know people who have done that so okay but whatever so didn't argue with that and you know i eventually made it past by playing nice and polite and uh got my butt all the way to Dutch harbor so that was that was an adventure to start off right off the bat. And then for those of you who don't know, typically when you do the Dutch Harbor position, uh, they actually fly to Seattle after you move to Dutch Harbor and they either do it before you move out there or like a little bit afterwards. And the reason for it is because everything is in Seattle in terms of the NOAA headquarters for Alaska. 
Um, and so they try to basically introduce you to the wonderful people there that you will be working with remotely. Um, and you get to meet your boss, who is absolutely lovely, and um, get trained up and basically learn the gist of what you will be doing, and then you ship out. Obviously, that didn't happen. So I got to basically go to Dutch Harbor, uh, was trained by one of the Anchorage crew that flew out there, and learned on the fly for the next one year of how to do the job, um, which was challenging. And honestly, it was a little refreshing, um, despite kind of the depression and just kind of watching everything kick off while I just kind of stayed in this ridiculously remote place. That was uh, a pretty good description of your ordeal to get to Alaska and getting your job orientation set up. So there you are, Dutch Harbor. You're there hanging out at, you know, the Rat or the Unicy or the airport or the whatever they call the hotel bar. I can never remember what that one. The Grand Illusion. Yeah. How was your time in Dutch? I mean, I've spent a couple months there, three months at a time uh, there in Dutch. And I got to say, I was pretty much bored out of my mind. Uh, how was living there? So the trick to Dutch Harbor is it used to be a very quirky and fun place to live. Um, in the words of someone that I knew that lived there that also moved away, as they put it, that quirky, weird side that Dutch Harbor always was, which is what drew uh, people there to kind of stay there because it was kind of a unique community. Um, COVID honestly killed it. So what's left is this kind of shell that they're trying to recover was how it was. So for me, it was a little sad to see all of the, the chaos that was just ensuing on the island that wasn't, at least in my opinion, necessary a lot of the times because it just caused infighting and conflicts throughout the island um when the reality is you kind of when you're out there you all are in it together whether you like it or not because there's no hospital you have somewhat reliable plane service although at the time the commercial airline was shut down so you were relying entirely on contractors and the life med flights for any of those injuries and stuff like that and so it, it just definitely caused a lot of chaos and stuff like that um for me i was fortunate enough to buy a dog before i got up there bear um some of you listening probably remember him more than me he was the chocolate lab in the office that brightened i think most people's days um which you know he kind of brightened my day every day while i was there and living there you get a kind of unique perspective you have a lot of time to think of yourself um about all sorts of things from your job, career path, life, contemplating yourself in the universe, staring into the abyss of nothingness. Um, you also get basically access to all of Alaska in a way. So if you are a great outdoor enthusiast, you basically get the, the place and um, chance to hike all over on Alaska, which is what Bear and I did. Uh, we hiked plenty of those trails. Um, and, you know, it's got to be said, it, it is Dutch Harbor is a very beautiful place. If you give it the chance in terms of nature, you see things that are just eye opening and, it, and it's beautiful. And if you do manage to get in with the locals, which I kind of did, kind of didn't. I was kind of an isolationist, if I'm being honest. 
Um, you also will find kind of a community in it, but it, it's very difficult to do. I kept getting told to just go to the bars. I'm not much of a bar guy myself. Um, if you go, you'll kind of, as an observer, you kind of see it there yourself. You get the, the kind of the night crew that shows up and... I don't know, just not my scene of uh, kind of the, the depression that that all brings. And it's also just expensive and everything there is expensive. So I chose to just have Bear and I go hiking all over the place and uh, just trying to stick for ourselves. And I ended up getting some friends that way, um, just kind of going up in the sucking in the clean air. Um, the tide pools are also pretty good. And if you are fortunate enough to be scuba certified and have gear, um, if you go, I think it's early spring, late fall. And if you're crazy winter, the water is super clean and clear. Like I had an underwater drone and the, the footage of just Dutch and the, the life underneath is phenomenal. It really is. But if you are very connected to like your family, friends, you need the internet. Um, although I've been told Dutch Harbor finally has fiber. I don't know how good it is. But when I was out there, it was just talked about. Um, but if you're anyways, if you have any communication with the, the lower 48 that you need, I, I would strongly refrain from from moving to Dutch Harbor because you will be isolated. And last time I checked the plane tickets are not really faring any better. They're kind of absurd to get out there. So it uh, you're kind of stuck there and you're trying to make ends meet with just living there. And uh, you're going to soak in a lot of money just to remain there. And what money little you have left, you'll be saving up to get off the island, hopefully once or twice a year to do whatever you need. I did hear that there's another airline that plans on running out to Dutch uh, besides... Uh, it's not Pen Air, uh, Raven. Yeah, Raven. There's another one that's planning on competing with Raven out to Dutch. I think it's called Aleutian Airways, and I think they are up and going out there. I have not heard really a whole lot of other things. I heard there. they're running the uh, they're they're running the sobs too. Yeah, which would help quite a bit. My, I mean, thing... those planes were so much faster than the Dash Eights. They were. They're more reliable as well. And the other thing, too, that was kind of nice about them is that they, they didn't have as much of a weight restriction on them. Yeah. Um, and you typically they were cheaper. Oh, you could get that one seat by yourself. That was nice. nice. You were lucky enough to your contractor get that for you in my my case. That was like the bougie seat to be in. Yeah. Ho, 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 ho. Uh, I just looked up the plane tickets for there. Yeah, they're not faring any better. They're $830 one way. Oh, that's Well, great. now. Yeah. I, you just got to get it in the off season, you know, leave when everyone's coming in and come back when everybody's leaving. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, I think Raven was still at six to $700 and even then was um, pretty bad. Oh, that's actually round trip $800. So that that's actually pretty is, good. Yeah, that's pretty good. So you were a uh, what what were your duties up there? I did say duty. Um, what, what were your duties up there in the Dutch Harbor field office? So you basically help run the logistics of the observer program. So I was the go to guy for observers if they needed gear, big cruises, anything that they needed in Dutch Harbor. I also worked very close with Elaine um, to make sure that at least AOI observers got their gear, also saltwater and stuff. And while out there, we tried doing various other things to keep the um, observers up and going. Because again, when I was there, COVID was happening. Um, so 
it some of it was getting creative to get gear and to test scales for observers it was also to mid crews the other thing that was kind of you're not really in charge of it but you kind of end up being part of it is kind of looking out for the observers in terms of like their mental well-being um because you, while you're out there you definitely see observers from like the beginning to the end and um i was definitely a big proprietor of, of informing seattle of like the the mental health of a lot of observers and then the debriefers got them and basically were like yep yep john was uh, was not lying they're not doing too well out there guys um so i was definitely someone to kind of listen to observers if they could come in or over the phone i also did sample station inspections where i would board the vessels if need be to look at their sample station make sure they're kosher uh, and up to spef with the regulations i helped the office of law enforcement sometimes in various tasks um and then you also are an in-season advisor yourself so i also oversaw the plants um and for the first i think year year and a half i was there i had all the plants and that's when they were doing electronic monitoring so i had like 32 to 36 observers at a time as an in-season um which was challenging to to listen to them and to help them out with their em and also all the other observers that came into port and were like i need this gear i found this bird i need to turn in this bird and kind of run the logistics of that oh and i also was the guy you turned in all of your sample genetics uh your bird species um frozen if you were asked to take those and your fish so you, you basically kind of you wear many many hats and you're kind of cycling through there's never really a boring day except in december because that's when no one's there but when observers are there you're always doing things always getting phone calls always trying to figure things out um, trying to be helpful as much as possible. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of just did a lot of various things. I do remember asking you for like 10 otolith files, like five new knives, uh, salmon envelopes out the yin yang, rubber bands, uh, and then sending you frozen fish and just, God, I don't remember what else. Paperwork, so much paperwork. There was so much paperwork at that plant during COVID that we cleaned out, like just oh. forms after forms after forms after forms. Yep. I yep. didn't want to deal with them, but yep. we did organize them before we sent them to you to be to be fair you know we didn't just send you a, a box of mixed forms you know they were separated so that the, was something the, the sad part about that kind of thing and i i i don't think I, I don't think i had the heart to tell you this but anytime you ship anything to dutch harbor no matter how neat you do it it is always becomes a mess when i get it nope, don't know it how fine, that happens John. it was fine don't lie <laughs> don't break my heart on this okay you did, you i did mean it. it was appreciated but i think because you shipped it in a box right oh, I, I don't think... remember it was it might have been a box it might have been one of the extra accordion folders we found i because honestly when i think when i got it it was in a giant plastic bag and i was oh, sitting okay, there and i was like <laughs> i was just like well, who the heck sent me all these forms and I remember, I think Carolyn was there as well. Um, and we were both just staring at this bag full of forms. And I think we just pushed it off for a little bit. Cause I'm like, I'm gonna deal with this. <laughs> I don't blame you on that. <laughs> 
so yeah, the other thing too is, um, and Carolyn was the one that took kind of took the thing and reorganized the office and got it going really well. Honestly, I kind of just kept it afloat. Um, was going through and getting rid of all the old forms because people oh ship forms there and then they just kind of die. So um, one of the debris the from of species comp forms I've found <laughs> going through the plant. <laughs> yeah. It's like nobody. This paperwork hasn't been relevant like five years now it's like eight years so oh yeah yeah now if you want a good laugh the the cabinet below the the letter sheets and stuff like that um is full of just species ids and stuff that have been sent there and then there's a box that one of the debriefers came up with and was like old forms that i think most of your documents went into if i remember correctly because we're like none of this is relevant anymore but it would be good scratch paper so it went in there and then something else i did was that seattle really wanted to make sure that i was well taken care of um being solo in the pandemic and having to to do things that typically i wouldn't do um a lot of the debriefers that came up there basically incorporated their ideas as much as possible to keep the office running smoothly so like every new debriefer that came up had like a little side project that to make dutch harbor better and i had to keep running with it uh sometimes i i didn't do so well at keeping it going and other times i, I kept it going pretty well uh, it just kind of depended yeah the pandemic was uh was crazy times so you got people who want to be observers you know maybe they'll listen to this episode episode maybe not what are your tips to people flying to dutch for the first time things to bring uh entertainment uh on the airplanes and like you know what's the what was your favorite spot to eat at dutch things like that oh i mean my favorite part was harbor sushi hands down i oh, mean like harbor sushi is the the only place really to go to the rat is getting better but it is a bar so you're gonna have to deal with the bar and a lot of other things now they are very friendly there though uh, and it is a family operated business and they were actually one of the biggest proprietors of keeping themselves running and open for people uh to kind of socialize and, and be a part of um to keep the community going so they are very they have a very strong sense of community and and every time I've been in there, at least the, the bartenders and the employees are incredibly friendly, um, which one of the stereotypes you'll get told is everyone is rough around the edges in Dutch Harbor. That is kind of true, kind of not. It just depends on who you're running into. Uh, some of them have a kind of a, a strong sense of, of community, and if they don't know you, they, they don't know what to expect out of you, I think is a better way of thinking of it. Um, but when you first get up there, it depends on what company you are. Um, if you're AOY, I'd say listen to Elaine. She's been through this quite a lot. She's continuing to be through a lot. She knows what she's talking about. I know some people will tell you she's, you know, kind of uh, herself is a rough around the edges and is a bit blunt and whatnot. I encourage you to still remember um, that she is an invaluable and a fantastic human being, to be honest. Um, so that would be my take for AOI is just listen, clean the bunkhouse um be respectful and you know you'll you'll learn a lot of a lot of things from her um i would say everyone else i would still type of kind of clean the bunkhouse be kind of polite to other observers 
listen to prior observers and their experiences. Don't necessarily take to what they say to heart. Some of them will be very accurate and truthful, others not so much. So you'll kind of learn how to navigate who you want to trust and be friends with and who not. Um, I'd say the other thing is a lot of times you'll hear that, like, don't worry about certain things. Nymphs never finds out. Um, Nymphs finds out quite a bit about things. So try to be respectful and professional when you're out there. I know sometimes that can be rather hard um but try to keep that in mind at all times in forms of um because locals definitely can pick up observers it's honestly a little creepy i can't tell you how many car rides i've been in where they'll i'll be with a local and they'll just point out like oh that's an observer I'm like how how do you know that's an observer and they'll just look at you like oh i can tell you're like that is creepy there uh ma'am but uh <laughs> i digress the uh, the other thing in terms of entertainment, I would think of try to think of any form of entertainment, something that can keep you occupied for months. And I do re- really literally mean months that requires no Internet, because when you're up there, um, regardless if it has fiber or not, you are going to, for the most part, be without Internet. So something that I know that was quite popular is people get into drawings, art books, reading is a good one. I personally liked my Nintendo Switch. You just put that sucker in airplane mode, you keep it charged, and you are good to go. Bring a good selection of games. Um, and honestly, you also bond with the fishermen over that, and it make your job easier. Uh, especially if you have, I think it's Super Smash, Mario Kart, Crash, Crash Bandicoot. Oh, I think Doom was another one. Um, and you just put that bad boy, you get in with the fishermen, uh, put it on like a big screen or something, and boy, do you make friends on boats real quick if you're the guy with the Switch. <laughs> um, and, ah, geez, I'm trying to think of other ways to, to look as first observers. I'd say try not to get nervous um, because it, it will be definitely a wake-up call a lot of the times. Pack some warm gear most of the boats stay pretty warm though so it's you're going to be exposed to the cold maybe a couple hours at a time you're you're really pretty protected because you know fun fact fishermen also don't like being cold so they have heated boats um man there's a lot that i could say here I'm, I'm honestly just trying to think of the key things to, to bring i'd say bring a hiking boots in case you get the opportunity to go for like a little stroll um that's always a good one i can't tell you how many times i've seen observers hike ballyhoo uh in rain bibs and then the next day they're sore they have sore oh, feet sore legs sore back. you gotta hike them in that those extra toughs man that's all the shoes you brought uh that's that's just to me that's just a bad idea bring hiking boots if you're going to do that that's always my recommendation um i'd say also try to pay a visit to uh, the dutch rubber field office give carolyn a, a hi uh i think you still have to phone in though uh before you get in there uh and just swing by and see if there's any of the latest news things they need to prep for and and uh things like that i would also, I know this is going to sound pretty pretty casual as a ex-nymphs is, is honestly review the manual. That's another one. I know you guys all get told, read the manual before you get on your assignment, and you're probably rolling your eyes right now. 
But really do. I can't tell you how many times it actually helps, especially if you do that and then you go into the fuel office and you ask questions like, hey, I don't know this. Like those are a lot easier to handle than you in season messaging. You're in season being like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Because then you're going to have your in-season rolling their eyes and be like, oh, good lord, not another one. Um, so, honestly, the manual is probably one of the most invaluable resources you can have. Um, it does honestly have all the answers you seek. And if you do have something weird happen, you're going to brighten your in-season's day and cause um, nymphs to kind of look at you cross-eyed for a bit. And it always, always results in a humorous story. Case in point, I was on a CP that got a crab pot offload. Uh, so we had basically a guy fishing for cod and delivered it to us. And there was nothing in the manual at the time when I was an observer on what you're supposed to do. And I had to phone nymphs in because my in-season was like i have no idea i'm gonna ask questions and i didn't hear back from them in time and i gotta have a lengthy conversation on basically us hashing out a logical way for me to uh to look at this offload and to take care of it in a way that we can get some data and whatnot to it um so those always lead to fun stories yeah that was uh that was a pretty good list yes checking the manual knowing the manual always just use that control f function uh i know or here now they're doing more electronic manuals and you don't even have to really bring a paper manual with you they're not requiring it as in years past oh man that was useful uh, though i mean if you were in a like a bind i mean you could probably not somebody with it really hard i know it was like a good form <laughs> of defense it really it was, was. It's a real hefty binder there and then you could prop your feet up. I think what was the other option? I had like a mini camp pillow, so I put like my pillow on top of it to prop my head oh, up. That go. was the other thing. That's yeah, cool. there's – I always laughed and said the manual has both many, many interpretations written in it. It also, in terms of the physical copies, has a lot of uses to it. And people, let me tell you, have been very creative in that endeavor. I will say to make enemies out of the field office, though, real quick, is to drop your manual off there. That is the fastest way to aggravate the field office and Elaine. So I highly recommend you don't do that. Yeah, just leave them in the bunkhouse. That's what everybody does. You know, yeah, don't be reasonable and take them back because who wants to fly with that? Well, you know, you're just leaving it stuck with somebody else. I don't know how many binders I've dragged back to nymphs with me because I had too many dang binders left up in the, at the plants or on a vessel. And yeah, that is how that. you don't want to deal with it. So get rid of it. Like, take it with you. Just fly it back down. It's that easy. Yep. That is, I'll say it's the quickest way to make enemies is to leave that stuff everywhere. The fastest way to make friends, though, is to take peoples and to take others that are left there. Be like, I'm going to take care of this. This is this is BS. Uh, you'll you'll make quick, quick friends that way. All right. So you went from observer to the carp king to working in nymphs. What recommendations do you have for observers who want to like work for nymphs or be in the field staff or find something beyond being an observer? So if you want to work in federal service, my honest best answer for that is to put a resume and a cover letter and then have somebody that you trust very well. Could be a parent, friend, 
Give them um, your email and password to your USGS or USA USAJobs.gov account and have them apply for all the stuff that you think um, like give them a list of things that you want to pursue. And that honestly is the quickest way. That's actually how I got my USGS position while I was an observer is my dad was doing that, um, which lined me up to where I got off a boat and had an interview lined up within a week of me getting back to Seattle. Um, you definitely want to learn the federal system and how they uh, really read the description on what sort of things they're looking for in the resume. Also, there is a new website that they're working on, and I'm not sure when that's going to come out. So currently, if you're applying to any of the jobs, I think they're still taking them, but it's it's causing a lot of issues. If you are hard set on working in the observer program as a federal agent and working for NOAA, I'd honestly say the highest um, way to go is field office. I thoroughly enjoyed my coworkers that were fellow field agents. I, um, I liked my boss a lot. You get a lot of flack, but you also get a lot of satisfaction, in my opinion, that I wasn't I honestly don't know how it is in Seattle because I wasn't there, but from what I've gathered, you get a lot more satisfaction in the the field offices if you want to stay in the observer program. You get a higher pay scale and you get to go up further um, than if you were just a debriefer in Seattle. That being said, if you're set into a field office, you're going to be sitting there for a bit and you're going to become a specialist of like logistics of science versus actually doing science for the most part which isn't bad i currently that's what led to my current degree uh path right now and working for the north carolina um it's just a different way of thinking of things if you're dead set on pursuing science i mean an easy way is to try and nab one of those debriefer positions and then quite honestly i would go for the race stuff I would work your way in and befriend people that are part of the race crew. So for those that don't know what race is, they are the organization within the Alaska Fisheries Science Center that does all of the the science and the they run a lot of the um, vessels up there um, in terms of the scientific research and stuff like that. And I am going to look up real quick because there's another agency that I think everyone needs to be aware of it's part of navy corps but it's not quite navy corps um they're basically the ones that run all of noah's boats so if you want observing but you want to have more science in terms of that um i would look up the nervous core noah Corps, and how to get in as a bioscience tech in that sense because Instead of you basically continuously being an observer and collecting lots and lots of fish, you will run a lot of the scientific processes. Um, so all of the cool gadgets that you see the boats run off of, you will be actually using and delivering. Um, the one of note that goes up to Dutch is called the Oscar Dyson. Um, that one is pretty good. Then you have, I think, in the West Coast in California to Oregon and Washington is the Shimada. Uh, but I digress. There's something to look into if you want to stay and do that whole ship life. 
um, because you are a NOAA agent then as well as a federal, but you'll be basically continuing that field research um, as a NOAA scientist on those boats, um, which I know a couple people that are doing that. And from what I've been told, they absolutely enjoy doing that um, because they get all the benefits of observing field work, uh, plus the benefits of being a federal uh, agent or like a scientist so you get all the like health benefits and stuff um and you get to remain out at sea so that's definitely another spot to do um for sure um and that honestly would be my way of working into the federal government if that's what you want to do um but i would take some serious time and consider what sort of pathway you want to go like what sort of science do you really want to do federal or not because one of the warnings that i didn't really think about too much and my dad being uh he did his whole work career was in the federal government he works for the national weather service uh something you will have to pay attention to is bureaucracy um, no matter what you do in the federal government, you're going to have to do with bureaucratic nonsense. You're going to have to pay attention to some politics shenanigans, which is not a lot of people's favorite thing to pay attention to, um, because a lot of what you do is sometimes dictated by a political decision that may or may not make sense. Um, so that would be kind of my warning against with federal government is there's a lot of things where it's like that would be nice, but you have to fill out these two other forms, plus get permission from this person, this other person, and then you need to um, do this other thing to basically go through all the loops polls to do whatever you wanted to do nothing's like bureaucracy yeah yeah i don't miss that part so you got out of the field office now you're over there chilling on the east coast uh what do you do i know you got a job you want to plug um we'll definitely get that in here but first i want to know what what do you do so i am the observer coordinator so i kind of run the logistics of the state observer program here specifically for gillnets so i try to put observers on gillnet boats and fishermen i also am trying to get the program up and running and a lot uh to move quicker i guess or better or more efficiently um trying to think of words here so i i basically also do i'm kind of the manager so i'm the boss of some of the observers um i make sure benefits pays all of that is taken care of um i get hotels that i get to pay for an order um i make sure gear is doing good i work with my colleagues to better the program in a lot of capacities um currently a project i'm working on as well is creating a um, manual of sorts with my coworkers. i help train the observers once they are hired um and i kind of make sure the observers are taken care of um and yeah there's there's a lot i i i can do and that i do do in this job um, um, kind of similar to what I did in Dutch Harbor, but I get a lot more say in what things and how things progress, which is nice. Um, I don't get paid as much, which does suck. Um, so rule of thumb, federal, you get paid a lot more and typically have better benefits. State, you don't, but you get a lot more say and you get a lot more, honestly, a more enjoyment out of it because you are more hands on. So I get to bounce ideas around with my coworkers and my boss. Um, I'm very fortunate in that idea. You get to work closer with other divisions. Um, we all kind of are, are a family unit in a, in a sense, and we try to help one another out as much as possible. So you get a lot of random things that you get to do as well that 
you would never really think you'd get to do, but in state, especially North Carolina, you get that opportunity. Um, uh, case in point, I did a AMC training. Uh, for you observers out there, you probably have already done it. It's that one day, it's called the scare day, where they basically do all the water, have you play in the water and do all the safety drills and stuff like that. Um, I got to do that over here and was trained and certified in it. Um, not particularly it's useful, but not as useful because the observer program here works in estuaries. And as the observers that were currently here kind of always used to tell me that they could just walk to shore if the boat sank, um, because the water is like three to four feet. So that was something to get used to. Um, and, you know, I just I really enjoy working for the state in the observer program here um, because of those opportunities and my coworkers to to make this program better and to help the state manage um, the gillnet fisheries and to help the other fisheries um, quite, you know, quite well. What are they targeting? Uh, how big are the boats? Like what what would an observer coming over to work for you look have to look forward to? So that's kind of the tricky part, too. That is quite perplexing. And it took me a long time. I still am not used to it. A lot of the, the gillnet fishermen over here work in like five to 15 foot boats. Um, and you're over the side and it's one of those technically you don't have to help them if you are fortunate to be in the boat with them to help like to grab the data that we need you to but on the side note you kind of need to because it's just you and the fishermen in a boat pulling in the gill net Um, there are two fishery seasons that take place um, and it is shad which is coming up and flounder which is in august and september or i think it's september october um i'm still getting the dates straightened out um those are like the two hard seasons that gillnet fishermen have outside of that um they just honestly are putting it in and and trying to get whatever they can um a lot of them would be trying to target uh various species to eat um i'm still learning that myself because it is very different from alaska um the other thing that is perplexing um or it's not really perplexing but is is really cool about this observer program is that we are we were created to monitor protected species so unlike in alaska where you're collecting fishing dependent data and kind of looking out for protected species this program is the opposite you're looking out for protected species and then you're trying to collect fisheries dependent data um and so our primary focus is sea turtles and sturgeon so you kind of help the fishermen out if they have one of those uh you get to actually work with the turtles and do resuscitation if need be a lot of the times they're perfectly fine or they're not is really cut and dry um and you kind of just get to chill with some um sea turtles and uh kind of help them along and you help us with our itp which is our incidental take permit which allows gillnet fisheries to exist here in the state of north carolina um because it's effectively us saying that we recognize that the gillnet fisheries you put them in and you're not necessarily targeting i mean there are specific fish they might be targeting but you're going to accidentally catch a bunch of other things in the process because it's a 
net. Um, and protected species are one of those. And so you help monitor to make sure that they don't take too much. Um, so sometimes it's a bad day and you get out there and fishermen bad bad luck and they end up with, you know, a wide variety of protected species and you get to make sure they're doing well, resuscitate or uh, take them in take it properly uh, looked at, uh, including sturgeon. Um, and other times you just chill and you help a fisherman fish and you get to see North Carolina be North Carolina and just enjoy uh, the summer heat or the, I mean, much warmer temperatures compared to Alaska um, while pulling in nets every now and then. Um, the other thing is that you're not gone for most of the time. You're traveling maybe, at least our goal is like a couple times a month to every areas. Um, it is a field operation, but you typically get to set up home, uh, an actual like home here. Um, so you're not constantly on a plane or you're deployed for three months or 120 days. You get to actually be a part of the community that you're trying to help uh, for better or for worse, which is something that's um, – I know for some of the observers I've, I've talked to, it's that's kind of a, a nice thing because it gives you time to breathe and do a, a career um, assessment of what you want to do. Um, trying to think of the other because there's there's a lot of differences. I mean, honestly, the biggest difference that I always told people was you actually get to enjoy the water. It's uh, because it's warm. Uh, you get to swim in it if you choose to. There are some beautiful beaches around here. Everything that Alaska does not have in that department, um, although there are some beautiful beaches in Dutch Harbor, the water still will very much kill you. Um, so you can't enjoy it as much down here. Uh, the fishermen are still fishermen, so that won't really change, although their accent will throw you through a loop. It still throws me through a loop. Um, and yeah, I mean, overall, I just I honestly I enjoy it a lot more than Alaska. You don't make as much money, though. That is something to be wary of, but it gives you the opportunity to launch your career a lot easier um, than in Alaska because you have this thing called Internet and uh, various other things that are, are, you know, that kind of work for you. Well, first off, uh, I'd like to point out that you said doo-doo, um, just pointing that one out. And uh, secondly, how much fish are these boats catching? Like, what, what's a what's a trip? How much fish are in a trip? You know, is it like 200 pounds? Do they have just the big blue totes on the boat? or? So it kind of just depends, honestly. Uh, and that's kind of the sad part about the killnet fishery is when you're on the boat, you're either going to ha- see them on a good day or a bad day uh, where they either catch a ton of fish where they can get like four to five hundred um, fish that they want. I'm trying to think of an example, but I, I honestly I also just started here. So I uh, like I would say five to six hundred pounds of fluke uh shad uh i don't know about shad that's that season's coming up so i'll find that Uh, up definitely not striped bass that's a touchy subject actually too Uh, it's all the east coast fish i know atlantic salmon Uh, yeah that one actually i don't think is down here i've not heard much mention about it on like a random curious note uh but striped bass is definitely one um that they do like to catch but that one's also heavily monitored um and typically you're talking like i think it's like five or six fish i honestly don't know that that's just me assuming it's it's not a whole lot because they they keep that on a tight rain uh shad season i think is when they mostly get their striped bass 
or is it mullet? I can't remember. Um, but during flounder season, they're focusing flounder. And so you'll get some fishermen get like 500 pounds on a trip, which is decent um, or 600 pounds. Um, others you get like, I remember I was on a boat where they got like five. So huh. yeah, it, it, it honestly, it depends on where they're at and what they're doing. Um, you do get the variety of fish and different things. My thing that I had to figure out how to do though, on a funny note, were blue crab and I think they're fiddler crabs. will somehow get in the nets um and those little jerks will pinch the crap out of you so unlike in alaska where by the time you get them on like a trawl vessel or a long line vessel they're pretty much cold and in shock and they can pinch you which will hurt a lot and i recommend you stay away from them but they're moving pretty slowly these crabs do not uh are not slow and they will pinch the ever like out of you and so trying to pick up blue crab while trying not to get pinched and although they won't break your fingers per se they definitely do hurt and i think the stone crab around here can break your fingers but thankfully you don't run into those as often in my experience but that was something to get used to um i ran into a lot of gar too so having to like watch their mouth was interesting because um, again you're you're getting pretty lively fish out of there which i know some people they think gill nets they're going to mostly be dead and that is not the case at all they are definitely not um, they're very much alive and they are pinching you are there um they're kicking back and forth and it, it's kind of cool to see all right so uh you know north carolina as someone who moved from alaska which pays pretty good to west coast which pays okay the pay cut wasn't too much of a big deal as i found other things to help supplement my income and not going through the anxiety inducing trips up to Alaska and back uh, was pretty nice. What fun things in North Carolina have you experienced? So in North Carolina, you just honestly, it's you get to enjoy the, the nature here and the, the benefits. So one of the things that I kind of appreciate is the cost of living here is really low compared to Dutch Harbor, um, which is very nice. Uh, a lot of the people I've met here are actually pretty nice. Some of them are a little odd, but overall, um, they're pretty warm, welcoming and, and whatnot. North Carolina also, for those of you that are scuba divers, they have this the basically a graveyard of random, not random, but a lot of warships that are just off the coast. You can also scuba dive for megalodon teeth, which is pretty fun. Uh, I've yet to do that yet because I've been busy uh, with my new job. But um, the other thing is it's just kind of like in a warmer area in general. You get to enjoy being outside a lot more. The other thing is there is a ton of sport fishing. I am very surprised with how much of that is actually taken off since I was in the lower 48. There is a lot of fishing you can do down here, despite what some might tell you. Um, and it is, from my understanding, quite fun. Um, recently, I just heard if you come down here to partake in the uh, sailfish sport fishing, you sometimes can run across Michael Jordan. John meant to say Michael Jordan. Because apparently he comes during that um, sport fishing season, whenever that is. Um, I'm still learning the different fishing seasons myself. Uh, the other thing is just that the sense of community you get down here is superb. Like I said, you, there's so many things you can do with your coworkers uh, that they'll just help you out with. That is just 
really fun um, from having you try to land a house, which is essentially what mine did before they even got to know me. They were helping me find realtors to get my current house that I have for rent to giving you different places to go eat that has delicious food that won't break the bank, um, which is exciting. The uh, the other thing, too, that you do have to warn is that because it is warmer, there are a lot more venomous animals down here, uh, like snakes. So that was a new concept, especially for Bear. Um, and for all of you that know Bear, he is doing fine. Um, and he has not been bitten by a snake, thankfully. But that whole concept of wild animals uh, eludes him quite a bit because Dutch Harbor doesn't necessarily have a lot of those. Uh, so getting him to understand that snakes are not friends and that they do exist is quite uh, the endeavor. Let's just say that. But uh, he's enjoying life down here, to say the least, um, as am I. Yeah, I've... Uh... I just pulled up just literally Google search like best things to do in North Carolina. And there's there's quite a bit, especially I mean, obviously, there's like a zoo and aquarium and things like that. But there's things like the East Coast lighthouses are always seemed really appealing. Chimney Rock State Park, Grandfather Mountain. This sky bridge is like huge. It goes across um, a lot of uh, history dealing with the civil rights movement and things like that planetariums there's just there's a lot to go see and do if you feel like you know kind of settling down a little bit you know this uh east coast or this observing position uh that john has talked about and the working alongside underneath john it's uh it's not something that's going to pay all your bills but it's definitely something that sounds like a really interesting experience and if you can find other things to help supplement your income it definitely is a uh, another aspect to add on to your resume and will help you build a little bit of normalcy to what can be a really crazy life as an observer. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing, too, is you got to remember that here you're going to have a lot more opportunities to actually reach out. So one of the cool things that's um, that I actually really enjoy about this observer program is you have the opportunity to meet people in other divisions and see what they're doing because they reach out all the time for things to do like hey we have this scientist that's coming in from uh north carolina state or duke university that is doing this we need someone to help with the boat um can we borrow your boat can we borrow this from you hey do we're doing this do you have an observer that can help us with it and if you are an uh, observer that wants to get involved then i mean it's it it is really easy to reach out and basically say hey i'm hitting the kind of a slow spot here in the observer program do you mind if i go and work with these people and help them with this project and you know we we definitely encourage that quite a bit and the other thing is um not to throw alaska under the butt, but we are a lot more willing to listen and to work with you to get things rolling like getting a second job um and helping you out getting you overtime when you need it and giving you things to do and be more willing to work you than saying, well, that's unfortunate. You're under contract. Therefore you're getting on the boat, whether you like it or not, not again, you know, cause Alaska does pay more, but there's less of the you're stuck there and more of you get a lot more leeway. Um, and like I said, you literally get to play with protected species, not play with per se, but like you get to work with them. So you get to add that to your resume is literally like you work with the Endangered Species Act. 
Um, the other thing is that when we have meetings, the observers are a part of that. So like when I'm writing the manual, I am actively engaging the observers here saying, hey, you know, the managers and I have thought this sounds good. And as the observers, is this practical for you to do? And, you know, sometimes they're like, yeah, you know, that sounds terrific. Thank you. And other times it's that is a terrible idea. How about this? Um, and we work together to basically make this observer program better and to benefit the state of North Carolina and its residencies, um, which is just, you know, it's a cool opportunity. Um, I would say to ease people's minds, I would think of this more of like a paid internship in a way, more than a job because of how low it pays. But like I said, it's more of I would encourage people to understand what the um, the opportunities are and what you basically get to do and who you get to work with. The opportunity to get paid to, you know, make out with sea turtles occasionally is definitely something that will appeal to someone out there. Uh, possibly Lauren. I'll let her know that, you know, I think she's the kind of person to make out or you could say resuscitate, but we all know what that means. Mouth to mouth resuscitation <laughs> is the only way to save a sea turtle. Uh, um, in I, actual <laughs> advice, don't do that. that. That would be bad. Yeah, I was about to say, as someone that is actively uh, involved in stuff like that, please, please refrain from that. Those little suckers can bite really, really hard. Uh, and that is not something that, yeah, is very kosher. <laughs> Uh, you also do have uh, people to kind of uh, to warn about in just certain groups that don't really like us that are not fishermen. Um, so that also adds, you know, kind of the fun things. Uh, I guess the equivalent of them up in Alaska, because I'm not sure if I can say them, are the ones that always like to blame trawlers for whaling operations when whaling's been banned for several decades. <laughs> Whale, whale, whale. Look what we have here. There you go. Well, John, that was a, that was a, a really good interview. You got any uh, parting grains of knowledge that you'd like to drop on people uh, before we call this a wrap? I'd say for those who are considering observing, to really think of it um, in like a serious manner, kind of like you would if you were thinking about joining the military in a weird way. Not as serious, though, as joining the military. And the reason for that is because observing isn't for everyone um you're going to be if you choose the alaska program you're going to be isolated up there with uh fishermen that may or may not like you most of the time they, they'll be professional and courteous but sometimes you're not going to get a good assignment um and so you have to be tough you have to be able to weather literal storms and figurative storms and that could be applied to any observer program you're going to um that is something to definitely pay attention to i would say in terms of programs not to rub uh my own as the best but i would say alaska for money west coast and east coast is hit and miss i would say my specific program is probably the one where you get a lot more say in what you do and to kind of help the program run a lot smoother um i would say the other thing to consider is what your goal is so as someone that's been an observer and basically been in a couple observer programs think of kind of a future goal as well like observing is not a career path it's a stepping stone for you to launch into something else 
keep that in mind, um, and that even applies to current observers. Remember that for many of you, it's it's not a permanent position. It is a stepping stone for you to get out. Don't fall prey uh, to that money check in Alaska uh, because you'll lose your sanity while gaining the money. And unfortunately, I've seen many kind of burn all that money through drinking. So take care of yourselves. Be safe. And keep your goals in in mind. Always keep that at the forefront and check yourselves on it. Make sure you have a plan of attack of where you're going in it. Pretty sound advice there. You know, always try to grow and improve yourself. There's a lot more beyond observing. Not to say, you know, observing's uh, too terrible. It's better than being homeless. But <laughs> it's uh, it definitely does take a toll on you mentally. And there's there's a lot besides observing. There's other research vessel opportunities that observers can get put on. And there's a lot more to it. And keeping yourself settled there might be okay for some, but most people out there are going to want more, want something better. So keep yourselves open, open-minded, and look for opportunities like this one. You know, John's presented over here on the East Coast. It's not something that's going to pay all the bills, but it's something to add to that resume and let you kind of have a little bit of a normal life. I mean, having a nine-to-five is relatively pleasant for most people. There's a reason why it's you know, one of the top top jobs or most jobs are like that. You don't live at the office for three months and then go away home for three months. So, yep. Uh, also, for those that are like, yeah, but field work. Remember, I actually put you in nice hotels to say <laughs> so you get an actual freaking bed that isn't moving. That... Are there bed bugs in that bed? Because <laughs> there's I... not. There's oh not. Goodness. You get like the Ooh, Hampton luxury. Inn or the I think it's called the Fairfield Inn Suites. Like, are there cigarette burn holes in the carpet everywhere? No, they are oh legit hotels. Hotels. I think Nags Head's the only one that is interesting, but the home, the the owner of that establishment is is <laughs> an absolute um, is the best, and they run it as a family operation, and they take care of you. So, like you. <laughs> In terms of Alaska, you're going to be treated basically better by in a lot of regards than uh, than there, um, just because of the nature of the fact that you're in the field work. But I mean, I'm not even joking. You, in most places, you could literally walk to shore. That is still mind boggling to me because I'm like, you got to, you know, I still got that safety training, you know, put into me. Put that a survival suit in under a minute. Wear a life jacket. You still got to wear a life jacket here. But like survival suit training, life pod, you can die from all these different things. Here they're like, if you're unfortunate on a boat that a fisherman has not fixed in the last few months and it sinks, which normally doesn't, you literally just pull out your cell phone. You call me. You say, you know, this guy sunk his boat. I'm here. I would like a pickup or I'm heading back to the hotel. Like, it's as easy as that. It's not really that scary. It's more of a, <laughs> you walk it off and walk home in a literal sense. But thankfully, I can say that that really doesn't happen. I think since I've been there, I heard it happening once in the last 10 years. And it was like, it was a we- it's a weird story. Um, I'd say come here because every, you'll find any observer program, you get these crazy stories that you just, they're hard to believe and yet they're very true. So... 
there's a couple doozies over here. I can tell you that. All right, John. Well, I really appreciate the interview. This was really eye-opening. It was interesting to hear your perspective and the journey you've gone through to kind of get where you are now and throw people on boats and have them make out with sea turtles. Uh, I really appreciate the interview, John. And yeah, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate being here for sure. And I'd say if you guys are interested in whatnot, reach out to the North Carolina Division of Marine Fisheries um, Observer Program. Uh, it's literally my first and last name at ncdnr.gov. Um, remember, my first name is a little weird, though, in terms of its O-N at the end, and there's no H, so it's J-O-N-A-T-H-O-N. Um, yeah, reach out if you're interested, and I'd say keep listening to this podcast because it's probably the, a lot of better supplemental information outside the manual. So, yep, read the manual. It was fun. All right. Oh.